Good morning, Mal. How are you? Good morning. <laughs> Just about in one piece. <laughs> yeah, me too. Do you know, I actually woke up at one o'clock this morning and thought it was seven, which... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that explains the... Yeah, anyway. the earlier, yes, the earlier invitation, right? Yes. The perils of being a sonambulist. Yeah, sorry about that. Anyway, uh, Rishi Sunak had a plate of bacon sandwiches. It seems to have done the trick for now. But uh, John Crace of the Guardian describes the government as being in a, a narcissistic death spiral. Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, and it's been like that for quite a time now. Unfortunately, it looks looks likely it'll be like that for knocking on for another year. There was an interview with David Davis, um, the uh, former Brexit secretary, um, one of the more sensible right-wingers, I always think, in the, in the Conservative Party. Um, and at the end of it, he said, and this will go on until the election in July. Uh, and I wondered whether he was just... Uh, and it, it sort of slipped past the interview. It didn't pick up on it at all. Uh, but I did wonder whether this was just his judgment. It's, you know, it has to be said, his judgment is not always perfect a lot of what he was saying in the brexit campaign certainly not turned out to be the case but uh i don't imagine he's got any inside knowledge about that but that's uh that's one uh conservative uh big, big beast i suppose he is who's uh uh no this colors to the july election last so we'll see it's an awful long time to be limping along isn't it i mean is there any sign of a magic bullet well you can't see what it is because there's no wriggle room in the economy, or, or a tiny wriggle room in that the, the tax take has been higher than, than the Office for Budget Responsibility was was expecting six months ago. Um, but really, the, the size of the national debt and the fact that uh, interest rates globally are, yeah, they're down on where they were six months ago, but, but they're still um, much, much higher than they were during the time when we built up all of this debt. Um, Paying back the national debt starts to look uh, uh, really extremely, or bits of the, uh, as much as we can of the national debt, starts to look really uh, serious. And everybody you know, is tying, and to an extent, Labour as well, are all sort of um, relying on significant economic growth and getting the economy going. But that's no easy thing. Otherwise, we'd have done that every year since, uh, since government began, or certainly since modern economics began. Uh, you can't just pluck growth out of midair. Um, even if you're going to do what I think are some of the right things, which is investing in infrastructure, that takes years, if not decades, really, to to uh, to show the benefits. And uh, it's just I find I don't see where the Conservatives can go. They're trying to throw a lot of things at their uh, sort of base over the uh, Rwanda thing, but uh, and, and the small boats and immigration. But people are sort of so, first of all, why have we got net immigration 700,000? That's Whose fault is that? Because we never had that before. They try and blame the European Court of Human Rights. And people start to reflect, well, you know, we were in the European Court of Rights for, well, ever since it started, so decades upon decades now. Um, and the, you know, the immigration issue has only really blown up, particularly the small votes issue, has only really blown up in the last two years. Um, so that can't be the fault of the European Court of Human Rights. It must be something else. And the thing that is most obvious is that we have a different government now compared to what we had in all those years. So uh, presumably they must be largely responsible. And they, you know, the more they focus on the small boats, I guess the more it focuses on their abject failure to have dealt with it.
I suppose some people are wondering who's writing the script here. And I, I know the Byland Times notes, notes that uh, 55 Tufton Street has come up with what appears to be a, 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 a earliest uh, socially progressive cause um, with the uh, moniker M on, you know, socially concerned citizens, uh, academics, media people even. Uh, I wonder who might they be. Um Concerned about the rise in immigration, something must be done, and proposing the inauguration of, of regional chapters, perhaps particularly focusing on the Red Wall. Yeah, I mean, they, it's uh, yeah. The, the migration issue is is an interesting one, I think, because the there's an enormous gamble around that. I'm mean, talking about social responsibility, clearly. Uh, on the one hand, you know the dangers that the people who have paid all this money to these uh, gangs in, to get across the the uh, uh, the channel. You know that that is an issue of, of that anyone with a social conscience should be concerned about. And there is also the issue about you know local infrastructure with the um, the speed of immigration. And I've always felt that on balance, immigration has been a very uh, positive thing. Uh, yeah, with you know, with its challenges, obviously, but um, the speed of it and the rate at which you can develop your local infrastructure to keep up with it in terms of housing and education and water and so on um, is a fair question, uh, I think, and and one that needs to be taken very seriously. So there is a proper, you know, a a good, you know, compassionate debate to be had uh, around immigration and simply saying these rates of immigration are too high and unsustainable. I think in no way indicates that someone is, is xenophobic. I think it's a very practical uh, argument. Uh, and my suspicion is that most people in the country don't, you know, don't dislike their you know, European or uh, Arabic or, or um, wherever their neighbours come from, you know, Japanese or Asian or, or you know, Southeast Asian. Um, it's not about them as individuals. It's just about the pressure that it puts on systems. That is uh, that that that's a uh, question, and the the wage issue that uh, many people, you know, moving into the country, are prepared to work for lower wages, and that's a challenge for for jobs for local people. So all these are respectable arguments. Uh, um, clearly, they they do fall into xenophobia, and that must be countered. But that doesn't mean the argument itself is. Uh, is one that we need to need to have, but of course it all gets over laid over in its death throes with uh, a government that I think has kind of almost given up on responsible government. Maybe maybe they did that as soon as Liz Truss came onto the scene and and uh, has uh, is instead sort of flailing around just seeing how it can uh, shore up enough votes that it doesn't go through a Canadian style meltdown. Hmm. You used, a, I think, a, a very useful, very uh, um, eloquent uh, descri description there of, of, of the com a compassionate debate. And I'm just wondering in the current climate how one might be organised. Well, debates don't get organised in this sense. Um, it, it's rare that, you know, although you know, politicians do regularly talk about um, uh, we need. Uh, I'm launching a national debate on this. You can't Big conversation control. or something. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yes, that's that's the, often the word that's used. Um, I don't think it works like that. I don't think people are uh, um, pay all that much attention to, to politicians that they're going to have their 
discourse dominated for, for a week or however long it takes by by what politicians tell them they ought to be thinking about. Um, so I think launching a national debate is really just means this is my... Uh, uh, it can mean two things. I mean, this is what I think. I've got to persuade you that, that to let me do it, even if you don't think it's a very good idea. Um, or sometimes it can mean I'm the faintest idea what to do, help. So I'm going to, instead of you know displaying political leadership, I'm going to do this vague debate and then at the end of it, I hope everyone's forgotten about it, I suppose. So yeah, I've never really known a national, a national conversation or a national debate which has actually gone anywhere. And as you say, at the core of this, I think the, the implication is that the present government's competence in terms of uh, stabbing the flow and uh, processing claims in a uh, judicious way has been distinctly lacking. Well, yes, I mean, we, yeah, you could, a government which is competent but not particularly liked, and I suppose the Thatcher government might fit into that uh, expression there, but people will, if, if they think a politician knows where they're going, and is is capable of getting there, then uh, they will. Yeah, I don't think Thatcher was ever a sort of you know loved national figure in the way that maybe Jim Callaghan was, and I think Tony Blair was in his in his early years. Uh, but people, nonetheless, yeah, you know, she never lost an election, uh, and she won three very comfortable elections uh, because I think she was perceived rightly as someone who had a very clear vision for uh, for. Um, society and was able to deliver it. Very interesting when when Keir Starmer said that there were um, three politicians that he wanted to model himself on and they were uh, Blair and Attlee, which is, you know, well, <laughs> Blair is quite controversial in the Labour Party, but at least they were former Labour Party. Yeah. Yeah. But he also said that um, Thatcher was, uh, was one of the three that uh, He'd do, and there was a huge uh, outcry from the Labour left that he should mention this. But actually, when Thatcher died, uh, it was like Tony Benn um, came out and said, you know, she was an, a, a major figure, that she had a clear uh, vision for society, and she and she led in that in that way and had an effect. And clearly, he said in his view that the the uh, uh, she was wrong, and and her overall direction was very damaging. <laughs> Uh, but nonetheless, uh, he was really quite warm in terms of his uh, appraisal of her as an individual, uh, and I think that's what Starmer was getting at there was the, you know, her uh, uh, clarity and her, her compromise. Really, we think of Thatcher as being very radical, but but uh, and of course she was in in in, in the whole. When we look back on her her uh, on her uh, premiership, but. Uh, we tend to forget just how cautious she was, certainly in the first uh, years. It was really not until 19, uh, uh, 1981, which was two years into a premiership, where she was really able to start shaping the cabinet in, in her own image. And up to that point, the, the wets, as they were known, um, the Ian Gilmores and Jim Pryors and the Peter Walkers, who were figures from the... Uh, Left of the of the Conservative Party, who'd been you know, great friends of the Heathrow team, um, they were all you know, all held very serious uh, cabinet positions. Francis Pym, you know, rose to foreign secretary in the uh, uh, in the aftermath of the the Falklands uh, invasion, um, and so she did take people from all wings of the party and gradually moved at a pace that she was achievable. 
rather than trying to throw everything in on day one as as Liz trusted. Um, and in a, way, a different way, Jeremy Corbyn in Labour did. She was a very practical politician too, and I think those were the there were the uh, the um, attributes that that Starmer recognised and would would uh, would you know pay a te- pay heed to in his own premiership, which sounds to be rather sensible. Yeah, not so much the the, the playbook, but the rhythm as the pace of the thing. Yeah, um, Leone uh, Graham, good morning. We started talking about uh, Sunak and his bacon sandwiches of Rwanda. And we were we moving there, uh, as you heard, to uh, uh, Starmer um, citing, if not praising, Thatcher a few days ago. Um, what's your impression of, uh, of the debunk of the past few days? Leon, did you want to lead in? And how are no. you, first of all? Oh, I've uh, had a bit of a cold, actually, so... Oh, commiserations. Um, I remember being there not long ago. Yeah, yeah so my, my voice is not particularly up, up to much, I'm afraid. Um yeah I, yeah, I mean, also, you know, he, she was a premier for quite a lengthy period of time. So, you know, that there were there were possibilities that allowed her to take her time to do these things because, you know, just she won in 1979. She was fairly obviously going to have, you know, at least, um, you know, one term in office. So she had five years. I, th- I think it's become a lot more difficult since um, 2010 because obviously the Tories didn't get an overall majority. Then they did get an overall majority in 2015. And then they probably lost it in 2017 when um, Theresa May went back to, to the country. So it's, uh, you, you know, those sort of times, um, you know, she, she she had 11 years in the end, didn't she? She was Premier from 79 till 1990, just as Blair had, um, you know, a lengthy period as well himself. So um, it's uh, it seems impossible now, really, to, to have a, a Prime Minister who serves and wins several elections because we've had so many Prime Ministers since 2016 alone. And since I've been... Um, the London Assembly member. I think it's five prime ministers have served the country. Um, it's just, it is just astonishing um, how short um, a period of time some of them have had as prime minister. And the Conservatives quite often go on about, oh, you know, we've had so many more women prime ministers than you. And actually, I think there's only ever been six Labour prime ministers. Um, ever since the Labour Party was set up. Um, and we've had five prime ministers from the Conservatives since 2016 alone. So, um, and it's hard to find things to admire when people are sort of um, moving into number 10 and then moving out again very, very quickly, I think. Um, so uh, I, I sort of saw why he was saying it, but as soon as he said it, um, I knew that there would be some people who would... Um, give a sort of huge outcry uh, against what it was a bit said. of a headline grabber, wasn't it? But more than that, I mean, the uh, the follow, I think, follow up, as Mal was saying, was a bit more thoughtful. Yeah, but I I think he was mainly um, also doing it because he's still sort of trying to make sure that people who aren't party members and don't tune into politics very often um, when they do um, that they hear the leader of the Labour Party saying. Um, think nice things about a very long-serving prime minister, but I don't know how well she is now regarded um, by people in the country. 
you know, if he's still after all these red wall seats, I mean, are, are those people, when they were all Labour voters who suddenly voted Conservative um, because they were keen on Brexit, are they really the kind of people that want to hear the leader of the Labour Party praising Mrs. Sutter? I have no idea. Um, but it, it seems, it seems I sort of understand why he did it, but I'm not sure it will necessarily work in the way that perhaps he was hoping. Mm. Uh, the Rwanda story seems to be rumbling on and, and uh, rebellions promised on both sides. He's screwed through with a plate of bacon sandwiches. But um, I'm wondering, Graham, if something has happened to the nature of political leadership um, uh, in the context of what Leone was describing there. And, the, you know, the, the uh, as it were, the ghost of Thatcher. Yeah, he... Uh... <clears throat> He's um, gone totally against the law. I think that's what people are worried about. Um, in in misconceiving, you know, what is what the the role of the law is, um, and so it it links up to the sort of being anti courts and uh, trying to get round the courts rather than um, simply um, <clears throat> applying the law and upholding the law. Um, he's trying to say, well. You know the law says this, but we'll we'll make our own arrangement, uh, and that goes against international law. So I mean, it's it's the constitutional uh, structure that is being threatened, uh, and I think that's what the most people are worried about. Um, <clears throat> and it's it's uh, it is symptomatic of, of the, the different relations between the, the leaders. Um, I mean, they're much more friendly in the past when Thatcher. Uh, in private, you know, they they were, you know, they went in on ceremonial occasions together, um, and they did actually um, maintain social relations outside um, uh, of Parliament, um, which I, I think is much more rare nowadays. Um, the, the symbolism of that is quite potent, isn't it? If you think about the. Uh... What, how the North, North of England perceived itself to be marginalised, sidebarred under Thatcher, the fact that, you, that a social conversation can still be had, implying that there's a, there is a futurity to this in whatever form, it sort of haunts the conversation a bit, doesn't it? I mean, now, in terms of Rwanda, the Byline Times is report, uh, reporting that 55 Tufton Street appears to, of trust fame at Al, appears to be hatching the idea of a franchise of, of uh, uh, concerned citizens, notably in the Red Wall, about the influx of immigration and the and the economic impact and the social impact. Yeah, they haven't actually done the, uh, a deep enough study on immigration. I mean, the the problem with immigration has been there for for years, uh, and it's just uh, unsolvable. But. Um, <clears throat> I think if the um, if they could set out uh, the, what the problem was with immigration, I mean, they'd get far better um, traction on persuading people to accept um, the measures to reduce it. Uh, earlier on, Mal used the phrase "compassionate conversation." I think I'm sorry if I'm not misquoting you, but the idea of, the, of, of informed, um, empathic laying out of this information, I'm, I'm, I was wondering. We were wondering how that could best be done. Mal, I think, excuse me, paraphrasing you, was saying that it normally is fudged and is a euphemism for either being uncertain or or, or persuading the public uh, incognito 
that we're going to go the way we're going to go. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, trying to make it a yes or no question. And it's, it's, it's um, depends on the situation. I mean, I, they are beginning to sort of point out that um, it's a problem of providing the services uh, and, and um, all the problems it's, it uh, generates in housing when you don't have housing. Um, so it begin it's beginning to, uh, or several of the uh, the government are beginning to uh, link up the the different sectors, but it's, it's not giving an overall analysis of of what the problem is. What should we make of the apparent? I mean, not yet uh, a coroner confirmed suicide of um, one of the. Uh, Inmates, so that's the term of the baby Stockholm down in Portland this week. Um, and um, certainly, I remember from my working life uh, um, a year or so ago, sort of suicide on the ideation was not no, it was not unusual, and uh, the conditions in which people were were living could be parlous, um, overcrowding, and so forth. It's also very costly. Is this a moment where some sort of humanitarian agency, the UN, for example, might consider stepping in? Should they? Yeah, well, that's uh, that is a question of the attitude. Uh, if if the um, asylum seekers um, feel that they're not welcome and they're not they're they're just a real problem, and they have to be put to one side. Um, that has a real effect on their mental state. Yeah, experiments have been done about the effect of people being shunned sent to Coventry, it has a, a very real mental effect. Yes. And but I, yeah, clearly. But also, if you travelled here in very traumatic circumstances on a boat, um, you know, part of the trauma of your journey was a, a horrible boat trip, during the course of which you almost died, then incarcerating someone on a boat seems peculiarly guaranteed to, you Trigger. know, you know, someone suffering from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, it could really stress them out. Um, so it just seems completely wrong to put people on a boat uh, for that reason alone, if, if no other. And I think they're intending to massively overcrowd the boat eventually as well. So, uh, But we don't really at the moment, I think, have all the full details of what happened. But I think people were beforehand saying, a boat seems uniquely horrible uh, as a place to incarcerate people. What about um, and some kind of external intervention, the way this is being managed? Can you, do you think that's on the cards? No. I don't, I don't see under what um, international... Well, I suppose uh, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, they had a rapporteur, a special rapporteur on poverty uh, around, didn't they, during the last recession? Uh, uh, I think talking about the benefits tribunals to Barclay. But I think commenting on, you know, system failure, which is what that person was doing, is one thing. Mm. Um, I think actually intervening in the running of the country, I mean, that would just create a massive outcry. I, I just can't see that happening. Mm. Um, yeah, that's interesting because the the uh, the idea, as I say, from Tufton Street, uh, on the, the other side of the equation, so to speak, of uh, expressing concern is quite readily mobilised and appears to be on the cards so that we will see these these 
conservative citizens group sort of ratepayers action stuff uh, materializing um, and, and I'm wondering if this is going to be a factor in the uh, what appears to be the relatively long process according to David Davis Mal was saying earlier on uh, towards July election next year how are we going to limp along I don't know. I mean, this is the problem with, um, you know, having so many prime ministers since the last election alone, um, isn't it? You know, and it's it's very difficult at the moment to see how Sunak can keep the team in Parliament, his team in Parliament, together because they seem to be fracturing off both to the left and to the right. Um, but if he can, then I think he will cling on as the prime minister for as long as he can but it's uh yeah it's uh it's all a bit desperate for him who oh, i'm wondering who the five tribes of conservatism are now and what we know them on the streets of east grinstead say how will we how will we identify their their woad and there's about five factions now how about that yes yeah <laughs> who is their well, just leader i mean and where is chris grayling and one of them's a, a star chamber really <laughs> they're beginning to call it which i think is that the um the lawyer group um it's which the, is, it, that has it's, to be the uh, lawyers for brexit group it's the erg's lawyers i think it's a group of right. lawyers that the erg yeah. asks to assess pieces of legislation for sort of you know levels of brexit in Levels of Brexitiness is what it was originally. <laughs> if there if there is such a word, that's what they were originally Put your brought surgical in. gloves on and with a test tube, isn't it? Mel, if you, you occasionally glance at Conservative Home, what about these five tribes? It's a bit like it's a bit like genders at the moment, but they just seem to proliferate hugely. And uh, one of the things you do notice is that the the, the level of and this is a general point because there was portrayed famously in in python's life of brian is that the uh the factionalism within factions can get really extremely unpleasant um and so just because uh, uh the there was at one point a right wing caucus they uh they're pretty vicious towards each other at various times it's uh fragmentation uh, yeah there are always um whether you want to call them factions or or groupings or like-minded you know, associations of like-minded people within political parties because the nature of first-past-the-post democracy um, is that we do our um, coalition building uh, within political parties rather than, generally speaking, across political parties. 2010 was an obvious recent example of that. So you have the, yeah, the Labour Party has the... Uh, you have the last election has been... Um, cropping up again recently, but the famous Alan Johnson um, taking down of the whole Corbynite uh, regime there from within the Labour Party, Alan Johnson, who had been uh, Education Secretary and, and Shadow Chancellor briefly, um, very, uh, to my mind, you know, kind of the epitome of, of good old style, you know, sensible, compassionate Labourism, uh, former postman who... Yes, who worked his way up through the unions, and and I always thought <clears throat> was was well worth uh, listening to. Uh, on but you know, launching an absolute broadside at the uh, the then leadership of the the party, who was in, in a debate with John Landsman on the 
on the telly. Now within the uh, left globally, you've got Bernie Saunders in the States, who until recently was the absolute pinup boy of uh, uh, the American left as far as uh, the UK went, who has come out very strongly against uh, a ceasefire, an immediate ceasefire in in uh, Gaza and, and Israel. Um, uh, so that faction has, has uh, had to uh, fall out amongst itself. Uh, um, it, it just those when things are going well, and the Tories, one of the big differences, I think, between the Conservatives and Labour over the years has been the Conservatives are more interested in power than Labour has tended to be. Labour has tended to uh, have quite long periods under Michael Foot and, uh, uh, I think, Ed Miliband and, and Jeremy Corbyn, where remaining pure to their moral superiority over the rest of us was more important than uh, than actually... You know, the compromise necessary for power. Starmer's different from that. Obviously, Blair and Brown were different from that. Uh, Harold Wilson was different from that, and that, that's why they were elected. Um, they were interested in power. But the Tories also have gone through these periods, the, the sort of Hague and Duncan Smith years were the most recent, where they would rather fight amongst themselves than actually put together a credible... Um, uh, credible message and the credible package that, for, that people might want to vote for. And the Tories seem to be just heading in that direction. This Conservative Home, the website, has a, a regular survey of members of what do you think is going to happen in the, the next election. Uh, over 60% of Conservative Party members now think that there's going to be a, a Labour government uh, uh, after the next uh, election, uh, which is the highest it's ever been, given that... Uh, you would hope your your activist base is 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 the most optimistic group in the country about your prospects. Um, so uh, the, the when the point where it's just dreadful and you've given up and things look, look awful is the point where this factionalism tends to sort of break out into something much more negative. Really, I mean, we shouldn't be, you know, we we shouldn't be too hard on factionalism within parties because that's where you get debates. And that's where you get, uh, you know, formation of new policy as, as society changes. So the idea that there are different strands within political parties seems to me to be an a far better situation than everybody simply parroting a single line all of the time. But of course, it can break out into just looking chaotic, and I think that's where we are at the moment. Yeah, and somehow, as you said, what the bits of the constitution that are still firing up, if I can suggest this might be the case, Graham's. Will keep the thing rolling along just about, but it, it begs the question of what the Conservative Party might look like in opposition, and at what point it would become credible again. What needs to happen? They need to start thinking about having some people who would make sensible leaders again. And at the moment, all the people who seem to have their name kind of associated with becoming the leader after Rishi Sunak are just, you know, incredibly extreme. And, uh, you know, it's this whole point that Malcolm has made on more than one occasion, making it now, that, um, you know, if if either the Conservative Party or the Labour Party appear to be too far to the right or too far to the left, then people are not keen to elect them. And I just really do not see how... A Conservative Party led by Suella Braverman is going to do anything. I mean, there's still members of the uh, Parliamentary Conservative Party who would have nothing to do with um, that. And I, I 
imagine there's still some members somewhere who are sort of one one na- one nation conservatives. They haven't all left, um, but it would just be appalling. Uh, and uh, or, or if it was led by, I don't know, Kerry Badnock, who's another name associated with the leadership. Again, very extreme, very challenging um, on a personal level. Um, uh, you know, I don't think either of them are, are suitable to lead um, the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party is interested in winning elections. They're just not up to that task. They're too confrontational. It's that um, difference just... between debate of ideas, sort of interrupt you, and the sort of ad hominem mm. stuff that, that we seem to be saddled with at the moment. Well, uh, yes, I mean, having, you know, being compl- uh, being a conviction politician is one thing if you ally it with being a pragmatic politician. I think that's what people always call Margaret Thatcher a conviction politician, but going back to what Malcolm was saying, she was also very practical, and I think we've now got people who are just have very strong convictions that they shout about but are completely not practical at all. Yeah. I say that, that, that part of the point of going into opposition is that the, in government, you haven't really got the time to to reinvent yourselves because you're chasing after events. And as we've seen uh, over the last decade and a bit, um, events can be absolutely overwhelming. We've had the subprime crisis, we've had the... Uh, COVID and we've had uh, Ukraine and now we've got Gaza, but uh, there's not really the space in, in government to, when, you, when you're trying to run the thing uh, as a parliamentary party to uh, at the same time to be really thinking out your your where your fundamental values now have to be translated differently because the world is different and, and the world is always you know, changing. So you can have the same values, but that doesn't mean you have the same policies over time. Um, and uh, from that point of view, you know, as we saw with the last uh, period of Conservative uh, uh, opposition, they had the uh, sort of desperate right-wing phase under Hague, who went on to be a great statesman, I think, but as leader was was really captured by a rather naive you know, right-wing vision. Uh, Duncan Smith, who, if anything, was worse. Uh, and then uh, the party shook itself uh, up and decided, right, we, we, we'd we really rather like to get back into power at some point. And so you've got Michael Howard doing the, the shoring up of the position and then Cameron being the uh, um, <clears throat> the the, uh, the figure that would actually take them back into government. Same happened with Labour, where you had Michael Foote uh, as, you know, uh, as you know, an expression of... of uh, you know, the Labour left and its its insularity in the same way that Hague at that stage was was a figure on the Conservative right. Um, then Neil Kinnock, who was the, the kind of the Michael Howard figure, who who brought the party back to its senses and actually did look like he'd rather like to be Prime Minister, uh, leading the way for, um, you know, really interesting question, had John Smith not died as to what would have happened in the 87 election. But uh, Tony Blair, the you know the, the figure who would actually sweep the Labour back into into power, um, so it's you know parties do go through this, and it takes a bit of time in opposition, which usually starts off with uh, uh, their uh, extremist base uh, ruling the roost, um, but then after a while they get bored with just being a ginger group and 
decide they better start doing some serious opposition and look like a party that can be re-elected. And that's what I suspect will happen to the Conservatives. We'll get the most dreadful uh, lurch if, uh, if and when they lose the next election. We'll get a dreadful lurch in you know, the, the, uh, those who want Farage to come in and lead the party. Uh, we'll, we'll have their day, and that'll probably last for two or three years. But then a point will come where sensible conservatism starts to uh, reassert itself. And uh, you know, whether they're out of power for one term or two terms, as we said before, the, the, the big threat for Labour is they're not going to be able to do what we really want them for, which is to help us to rediscover ourselves and, and to uh, put money into you know, people who need it. Uh, who don't always get it under conservatives whose main job in life is to sort the economy out. Um, Labour won't have that uh, that uh, leeway or anything like it in the next uh, election, and therefore disillusion with the next Labour government could set in more quickly than, say, it did under Blair, where the economy was booming and people were really feeling very comfortable with life in the in the uh, first two 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 Blair terms. Um, so I don't know, but but we shouldn't. You know, the Labour Party was written off in 1983 by some commentators after the formation of the Social Democratic Party. Uh, the Tories were being written off after the second uh, Blair landslide in 2001. I think it's a mistake to write off either of our major parties. They've proved a lot more robust than that. Hmm. I wonder if this is being moved a little bit further afield. Uh, Donald Tusk has just got the premiership in Poland and the Truth and Justice Party is sort of falling away perhaps going into one of those the sort of manic phases you've just uh, uh, described of, of, of uh, parties in opposition, particularly conservative parties, um, just there in the middle. Uh, in Argentina, I see that a, a far-right government has, has, has uh, swept to power and is sweeping away stuff right, left and centre. There's a lot of it about, in both directions. I wonder about the implications for geopolitics well, as well, particularly Poland with regards to, for example, Putin who himself is up for election, we see, in another, another six glorious years, or not. Well, yeah, well, Putin's certainly yeah, got a final <laughs> Or a Putin, yeah. There's yeah. a choice of about 25 now, isn't there? You know, you know, they've just unwrapped a fresh one. Lookalikes, yes, yes. You don't know which one will turn up on a particular day. <laughs> I think Donald Tusk is a good thing, and uh, I think that will be good for the European Union. Um, because they were getting into all sorts of um, hot water with trying their dealings with Poland, because the whatever the no whatever their the previous part, the tr I think it had truth in its title, but I don't think it told much truth. Mm. So um, I think they've still got problems with their relationship with Viktor Orban in in Hungary, who's yeah. cut from the sort of Donald Trump esque piece of cloth, and this uh, guy who's just been elected in Argentina, I think, is is pretty much the same sort of uh sort of wild claims and um I don't think he's the right person to actually sort out Argentina's problems, but he had some very eye catching sloganeering that he used during the election campaign um that got him over the line. And he seems to be very, very um socially right wing. And I think he I think it, it, he'll probably want women back in the home and I think he's removing abortion rights and I think he's anti-gay. Sort of, you know, that little playbook that they quite like. But yeah, it's, it's, Holland, it's, yeah. yeah, and and also, yes, he, he builders uh, in Holland. But I can't, he, 
they he needs to form a coalition and i don't believe there are any other parties in holland with whom um it will be possible for him to form a coalition so he might be the largest party but i'm not sure he's going to end up being the prime minister but anyway they all seem to have gone into that sort of post-election scrambling around phase that uh, sometimes happens when you have proportional representation and it produces uh, very, you know, no overall control in a national parliament. It can be quite difficult. So I think, you know, it, it's a difficult time in the world. And so sometimes people turn to people with very, what appears to be a very clear vision. Um, but that may come with some things that are sort of, you know, socially quite difficult. Um, and there's a couple of African countries that have, you know, just started to go down this road of uh, being socially very illiberal. Uh, you know, speaking as someone who has sort of... <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to go on mute again. Need to cough. Eloquently done. I'm wondering, uh, actually, uh, in the light of what the only was saying there, whether the the the, the vestigial template of the British civil service and the sort of the uh, the soft core vestiges of empire uh, are, are lurking behind how these different scenarios might pan out. Not just us, of course, but but where the the, the origins of these playbooks and how evident they might be. Well, that's the the Chinese propaganda is based on. Uh reminding people of the empire and its bad effects. Mm. Um, but I think it's, uh, in general, it's, it's, um, it's the voters not uh, agreeing with the politicians that uh, there's the, the, the reason that uh, they don't vote for them. Um, and you know, the, the requirement that you have to be a Brexiter uh, to be in government, um, the, the the popular the um, public simply aren't there anymore. I mean, seventy five percent against Brexit. So, or, or wish they hadn't signed um, to leave. So, uh, it's impossible to to be in the government. You have to be Brexit um, for anyone to vote for you. And I I, I think um, that's going to really affect the the, um, the election. And I, I, Keir Starmer is just playing it very cool by not bring it up but um you know it may turn against him uh it's it, it is a risky, risky uh strategy to try and uh, avoid all the elephants in the room there seems to be a way in which these these surveys are pitched which allow people to express regrets but at the same time is that quite the same thing as where they go to vote because they there is this Perhaps this need, as we were saying earlier on, to blame something, however nebulous. Well, that's the um, the importance of, of them um, keeping secret the ease of which we can go back into the uh, or or um, <clears throat> article fifty revoke uh, yeah on article fifty. Uh, so no politician wants because it's it's um, it's it's an unacceptable. Um, <clears throat> Root for the politicians at the moment, apparently. Hmm. Do you think that's the game that's being played here, Mal? Is it, you know, is it, are they, as it were, uh, keeping their powder dry on this one? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, the problem, yeah, well, where Labour lost the uh, the last election so very, very heavily was, as we all know, was in the red wall seats where, broadly speaking, people had voted 
uh, to uh, leave the European Union. Uh, yeah, most Labour voters were still Remainers in those areas, but but uh, enough Labour voters were uh, put off both by Corbyn himself, who was electoral poison in the in, in the north, uh, as Alan Johnson said, uh, but also uh, the uh, the EU uh, uh, issue, and uh, those are seats that Labour, yeah, absolutely has to win back a very considerable number of those seats if it, if it is going to form a, a government, and uh, and they look like they're going Labour's way. The opinion poll seems to suggest that Labour is re-establishing itself nicely in the in those uh, seats of the uh, West Midlands and the North. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, yeah, why would Labour risk overturning that apple cart on this thing? Well, it's always that difficult balance. We talked about it before between, on the one hand, an opposition uh, becoming too precise about things, because it hasn't seen the national books in the way the government does, and it may find itself with less leeway or more leeway than, than it thought it would. So being too precise about what it can it can do in detail is a mistake. But on the other hand, people, I think, do like to feel they've got a, a, a reasonable feel of the broad direction that, that uh, an opposition party coming into government would would take. Uh, and that's a difficult line to draw. And uh, yeah, if the opinion polls are anything to go by, which have consistently <clears throat> shown Labour with up to a 20% poll lead, and that's still the case now, uh, the, the polls that came out yesterday, then uh, it looks like the Starmer strategy is, is working rather well. But it's not um, of its nature any different from what most opposition parties uh, do coming into an election, which is to... Uh, seek to give enough information on the broad direction. And Starmer's beginning to firm up a bit on that, but not to uh, leave themselves uh, very limited in, with their freedom of action when they actually take power by by being too precise about some of these issues. Mm. It's not quite the same thing, but a, a vision has popped into my head of David Cameron, pre-2010, uh, sat in his kitchen doing these modest little videos about uh, his big ideas. We didn't realise then the extent of his wealth and his gypsy caravan, which is itself a matter of some controversy. How is he doing on the world stage at the moment, do you think? And is he the is he whatever magic bullet there might be, at least to keep things limping along for the next 12 months? Or is he damaged? Is he an example of damaged goods? I think well, he's, he's a serious politician, and I think he's... I mean, I, I've, I've quite a lot of time for James Cleverly. There was that absolutely ridiculous thing where he referred, was clearing, referring to a, uh, uh, a constituency in Stockton by a, a, an unflattering term, which he then claimed, no, it was the it was the MP he was referring to. I'm not sure it makes it any better. But but that aside, I think Cleverly has been a safe <laughs> pair of hands at the Foreign Office, and, and um, I, I have far higher hopes for him at the Home Office than, than either of his two predecessors. Um, but Cameron is he well for one thing he's he's known on the world stage he's respected on the world stage um, and uh, that that counts for for, for for something his statements on on Israel and Gaza have been extremely balanced and he he has um, you know really broadly taking the idea that uh, you know, we we understand and completely support why Israel had to respond strongly to the to the dreadful atrocities of October the 7th, but there has to be a limit. And the uh, uh, the effects this is now having on the both the immediate but also the, the long-term prospects for the 
for the occupants of Gaza has to be taken into account. And and I think he's it's just a serious act. And yes, he he, he besmirched his image very badly over the uh, over the lobbying uh, issues that he got involved in post being prime minister. And he'll always be ultimately remembered as the prime minister who took us to the European referendum. But he, he's a man of substance and, and a man of very considerable experience, having been premier for six years. Um, and I think he's, uh, I, I suspect the Britain's uh, overseas reputation is is uh, enhanced by, by David Cameron and Foreign Office. Yeah. Beardy, how are you feeling now? Uh, like I can speak for at least a minute without coughing. Nobly done. Thank you. <laughs> I'll time you if that's helpful. <laughs> Thanks. The, the return of Cameron, how's he doing? What, what's his report card looking like? Well, I think it's uh, it's a bit like the, the revolution and the, the comment from the Chinese ambassador. It's probably too early to tell um, about the French Revolution. Um, but, yeah, you know, he's a safe pair of hands. Um, and I think, you know, probably given a number of these sort of swivelized factions within the Conservative ranks in Parliament um, was probably a, a, a... I mean, I don't think anyone was expecting it. So it was quite an interesting choice um, and cleverly surely has to be better than Preeti Patel and Suella Brabman. I think, I think Malcolm's quite right that he, he's, uh, he'll, he seems to be making a better fist of that. I mean, at least he doesn't seem to be writing an article <coughs> to boost his own um, profile and, um, you know, interfering in how the police run themselves and all the dreadful things that, Braverman seemed to be unable to stop herself from doing. Um, so he's got to be better than than, than she was for, for a start off. Um, but I think it's quite hard to... I mean, I think that's the problem with being the Foreign Secretary, is if, if you are um, the Foreign Secretary at a time and there's a lot going on internationally, and there surely is at the moment, then you're probably off doing sort of diplomacy and doing things somewhere else. So you're probably not as much seen as the Foreign Secretary um, as other uh, of the great offices of state, where you're very much more um, sort of hands-on and in the UK. So, um, you know, but he is well known in international circles. Uh, whether How much he is respected, I'm not so quite sure. But I think he's more respected than than many other people that um, Sinek could have slotted into that role. I suppose he, he, he uh, Cavalry clearly look relatively professional, don't they, in the current context. Um, Graham, what's your analysis? Yeah, it's amazing how uh, people's reputation uh, can can recover. <laughs> yeah. um, which I think he's doing a very good job to redeem himself um, in 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 that sort of impression um effect and um, as we've spoken of before i mean that's what wins elections is the impressions people have not what the analysis they have um because they simply can't uh, make an analysis uh, of of the the um the whole situation uh, so they run on on impressions quite understandably uh, and uh, cameron is doing a lot for that in in Ukraine as well. I mean, he's um, that was the first place he visited in support 
so it's, it's it's going much more to uh, Europe in, to support Ukraine. Now Biden has the problems, electoral problems in, in America. Indeed. And how on earth the economics of this are going to work out in the context of Gaza. Um, could I throw something else into the mix here? Uh, again, I think from the Byline Times, um, there have been um, uh, forebodings that the, uh, um, the the restraining of the Electoral Commission back in 22 via an act of that year is going to leave us, uh, the UK, as well as other places, wide open to electoral fraud. Um, and uh, that the uh, trope of foreign interference that we, some people attribute to what happened with the Brexit campaign and others. Um, does this concern us? So, talking about fraud, there's a, a, a wonderful article in the uh, Financial Times. Um, about Tem about fraud? Yeah. Tem Thames Waters fiscal plumbing. Ah, yes. It's part of the problem. And that was a, a restatement of the case, my case. Um, and uh, she avoids um, making outright ac accusations by using the word fiscal plumbing rather than fiscal fraud. <laughs> um, uh, but just says um, well whatever it is you can call it what you like but um, it's a real problem for Thames Water so it's, it's another um, example of the, the uh, consequences of, of wrong policy um, <clears throat> which is now reaching a, a national level with the water water system it's a thought, it was the analogy, I mean, the, the, the enemy of the people and all that dramatically picks up on this, doesn't it, if I remember rightly. The, the, but the, 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 what it says about infrastructure and the, the lack of intervention, how the company is managed, because a lot of people felt that it was primarily a sort of organisation uh, aimed at, at, at uh, speculative investment rather than something that fed through into its core task. I suppose you could think of governments in that sense, can't you, in terms of the, the extent of their hair-brainness? Well, so, um, it's how the um, Conservatives or, or the, the corporations try to, to um, pull the wool over the government's eyes and the, and the government doesn't have enough expertise and refuse, refuses to listen to the experts um, to analyse what, what the, the, the situation is. Uh, and why uh, it's the reason it ends up in court, which is the only place that it can happen. Hmm. And this can um, happen with elections too, can't it? I mean, if they, again, it seems to come down to a, a view of the constitution and how it could be subverted. Yeah, I mean, in in, in the end, the people are going to vote on the constitution, whether they know it or not. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, how it's how it's doing, you know, how how true the government is to uh, fulfilling the constitution. What's wrong with this picture, sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, and how we're all are we going to lose our reputation, which we've already done over Brexit? Mm. Um, I, so think I, a, I think Cameron is interesting in that sense that he's he's given a tiny glimmer of hope that we're going to return to a constitution. Mm. And, and ironically even, enough, you know, he's, he had this flirtation, shall we say, with Greensill uh, when out of office. So he's he's certainly uh, sort of. Uh, uh, had a, 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 a distinctive impact in terms of uh, a, a, a avoiding uh, some of the uh, obligations he might otherwise have. Yeah, that, that seems to be the temptation when you get into power. Um, and and it's, it, Montesquieu quote is, is uh, 
very well stated, you know. Um, it and explains, it. explains a lot of the, the politicians' power, uh, the behavior once, once they've been in power for some time. I mean, it seems impossible, to, uh, well, very difficult for people to give up power. That, um, mm. so are we talking about sort of political cabin fever? And this is an inevitable part of the cycle, the death spiral, or, or the echoes of it. No, I think it's it's the psychology of the um, the, the people who get elected, um, and the, the refusal to believe that um, they can't do what they wanted to do in the first place, um, and so reduce themselves to just hanging on to power. Mm. Mal, do you think that the the uh, uh, relative toothlessness of the electoral commission is going to cost us dear next year? Sorry, say again. Yeah, there's been a, a concern, I think, in the byline times that the Electoral Commission following the Electoral Act of 22 is not going to serve us particularly well in terms of the, the uh, 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 vulnerability of the process come election time. Yeah, well, the I mean, the reports that have now been done on the 20, uh, 23 uh, local elections back in May um, show what was obviously going to be the case that a number of people were not able to vote because they uh, didn't have the right uh, um, documentation and indeed hadn't realised that they needed it. And the uh, electoral office here in Wandsworth, which is very, very good, I mean, it's the, I have a huge uh, respect for the for the efficiency of our electoral services staff here going back for many, many years. Um, and they are doing their best to get information round as to what you need to go out and vote. We've got a test run coming up with the by-election in, in Tooting Broadway Ward, uh, <laughs> where the council will you know, do its best to make sure that everybody who wishes to vote uh, knows how they can do so. But it's quite radical. The um, And one thing that has had a great deal of attention, for example, is that at the moment, if you want a postal vote, you can just sign up for it and it's there forevermore. You have to renew your postal vote every three years, I think it is, under the new, new regulations. Um, and I mean, I, being a sort of nerd and in the job, know about that. And so we'll, we'll uh, be ready to, to renew it when the time comes. But I do wonder whether how many people that don't perhaps, uh, uh, perhaps have better things to think about in their lives than the ins and outs of electoral law may find themselves believing that they had uh, were still signed up for a postal vote and, and were not. And um, it's, I mean, the, the you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg was very, very clear about it, that the, uh, the and everybody knew that the, the uh, inspiration behind the policy was to uh, make it more difficult for people who wouldn't vote Conservative to actually vote. And he gave a famous speech saying it had backfired. Uh, because actually quite a lot of the other people are fed up with the Conservatives now. And the ones who were disfranchised were people who, who might well not vote uh, anyway. Uh, and so, you know, the elderly were, you know, maybe in the nature of things, we're, we're you know, to my age, we're a bit more stuck in our ways and we're less likely to uh, have noticed the change and to bring the uh, proper documentation than others. And I can absolutely see that, particularly in a rural area, if you've traipsed all the way to the electoral station to be told, no, you haven't got the right documentation, go home and get it, you may not be terribly inclined to drive our authorities back home to get the stuff and then come out yet again. Uh, so, um, yeah, it was very unfortunate.
contributions. I hope it's something that will be repealed uh, fairly quickly by by an incoming government of a different colour, uh, but not a you know other shameful episode, really, if you ask me. Yeah, uh, Leone. Well, it just seems wrong to me to put barriers up that will make it more difficult for people to vote. Um, you know, we should uh, philosophically and practically embrace the idea that, you know, we should be encouraging people to vote. Even if they're not going to vote for your party, you should still be making it easier for them to get to the polling station or vote from home or, or whatever it is. Um, and the changes uh, seem to be absolutely uh, aimed at depressing people's ability to vote for both the, uh, you know, both in person uh, and via the post, as Malcolm has set out. And the other change, of course, that came in is the change to the electoral voting system for the Mayor of London. And again, this has been done explicitly to benefit the Conservatives. It was Patel, wasn't it? I think. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's quite disgraceful to um, introduce changes that make it more difficult for people to vote. On on the issue of the Mayor of London, because you were allowed to have a sort of first choice and a second choice and an alternative vote. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it allowed people who particularly wanted to vote for independent candidates or um, small, smaller parties uh, to express that as their first preference, but then to sort of also have a, a backstop to say, well, you know, of the two larger parties, Labour or Conservative, my second preference goes to one of them because I, you know, I, I, that one is the least worst option, and I want to stop the other party from from winning. Um, and of course, a lot of people who voted Liberal Democrat and Green then went on to put Labour as their second preference. And I think the hope is is that um, people won't do that, that they'll just vote Liberal Democrat or they'll stick with voting Liberal Democrat or Green. I don't know that they necessarily will. Um, I think if they are going to vote Liberal Democrat or Green, I think it's very well established by those two parties that the place where that creates the greatest success is on for the list candidates, which is where on the Assembly they have been successful. There are currently three Green Assembly members and two Liberal Democrat uh, Assembly members, and usually that ballot paper is orange. And when Sean Berry stood to be the Mayor of London, um, her slogan was, vote Sean Berry, vote Green or Orange. Um, so that you know, they've actually had it explicitly as part of their campaign slogan: "Vote green on orange," um, just to sort of emphasise where you should be casting your your green green vote. Um, so it's it's quite interesting um, that they the Conservatives have done that. Of course, we'll find out very soon next May whether or not it makes enough of a difference for um, Sadiq Khan to be defeated. And at this point, nobody knows. Just yes, just. One comment on the, unfortunately, most of this week's by elections are counting today rather than yesterday. But there was one interesting one in uh, in in Lincolnshire, uh, in uh, North Kesteven, where uh, the last time, I mean, it's so solid Tory territory that last time it was unopposed, which is pretty unusual in in uh, principal authority, <laughs> the local district council. Uh, but the two Tories were elected unopposed. 
this time the Lib Dems, there was a by-election, the Lib Dems put up a candidate and, and won the seat. First time there's been a Liberal Democrat on that council since 2011. That, the, must, uh, that must feel like the, 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 the revolution is in the air. Wow. Well, yeah, but... Lincolnshire, as, as blue yeah. as you can get, rural Lincolnshire, home, of course, of Margaret Thatcher in Grantham. Mm. Uh, mm. And uh, that, but uh, so, yeah, the... The red wall is one thing, but the blue wall is looking very. The foundations of the blue wall are looking uh, looking like they're uh, collapsing somewhat at the moment. And mm. again, usual usual thing by elections, you've got to be careful about uh, uh, that. But the Lib Dems also held on to the two. Uh, well, held on, they they got a small swing four uh, in one of the by elections they were defending. Um, a six percent swing against them to the Tories in another one, but there's. There's sometimes an anti-incumbency factor that if a party is actually in control in an area, then uh, people can sometimes uh, take that against them. So I don't think that one means too much. But the the uh, the Lincolnshire one is very interesting. The Lib Dem revival is, I think, perhaps something we might uh, get round to discussing sometime soon. You and Presley, I mean. Uh, they've been doing very well with some big swings towards them in a whole variety of places, mostly places where it would be very unlikely that... Um, Labour would win. I mean, if it's uh, been, you know, since 2011 when there was last a Liberal Democrat on um, North or South Stephen Council, I, I wouldn't imagine that there's, you know, been a, a phalanx of Labour councillors uh, there at all, at <laughs> any time, uh, and, and possibly not since 2011 specifically at all. So uh, I, I think Malcolm's right. I think there is a threat to the government from, you know, and of course that was one of the things that helped um, create the landslides for Blair was mm. there was a massive swing against the Conservatives and in 2005 the Liberal Democrats had 62 MPs. Now I'm not saying they're necessarily they going to go. They did, they did. I'm yeah. not, not you know, I think they've got about 12 at the moment. I don't know exactly how many it is, but, you know, even if they got to 25, 30, 40, that helps... Uh, Labour with getting towards an overall majority, um, you know, because they've taken some further seats off off the Conservatives, and also with Labour sort of apparently coming back into play much more in Scotland, because of course Blair had forty or fifty seats in Scotland, uh, and the Liberal Democrats with sixty two seats, and obviously you can then go from that to, you know, his sort of stonking majorities that he had, but I still think there's a lot of road to travel before we find out what's going to happen in the, the general election, how that's all going to pan out. I know there's some very big opinion poll leads now for Labour, but I do think politics has become much more localised and so you see these local situations um, battling out yeah, and it's I don't think there'll be uniform swings of 20% across the country when it comes to the general election at all myself. Mm. No, that's well, absolutely. I'm sure. I'm sure that's absolutely right. We we began to see that in 2019, where there was quite a, uh, or, or even before that, 2017, where Labour did much better in London, for example, than it was doing in in the north. And so you got, uh, well, as mm. we know, yeah, the, um, our, our dear Fleur Anderson was the only Labour gain in the country uh, in 2019, and London became, uh, and some of the London majorities that had been. Uh, fairly tight, really opened up for for Labour. Uh, so London was was had an, a, an overall swing towards Labour through between twenty fifteen and twenty nineteen, very significantly. 
Um, it used to be the case up to about 2015 that if you took the three parliamentary constituencies in Wandsworth, they were remarkably typical of the country as a whole when it came to the Labour versus Conservative vote, the whole string of elections within about three percentage points. If you took the Labour constituency, the, the absence of Liberal Democrats in in Wandsworth uh, means it's not a complete comparison. But if you just looked at Labour versus Conservatives uh, nationally, they would be very, very close to Labour versus Conservatives in the three parliamentary constituencies. Uh, uh, that's just not the case anymore. There are three, well, two stonking majorities and 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 one that I'm sure will widen very significantly in the next uh, election at a time when the country as a whole was, was voting uh, Conservative. And uh, so... Leon is absolutely right. There will be regional differences and possibly even seat-by-seat differences. The other thing that we need to take into account is how far tactical voting goes, because national opinion polls obviously can't reflect the idea of, of uh, whether in a particular constituency someone who is tempted to vote, either Labour or Green or Lib Dem, but might uh, lend their vote to whoever the most credible anti-conservative candidate is. So that, But having said all of that... Um, even in 1992, uh, when the Conservatives had a surprise uh, victory, the polls running up to that election were very, very tight. And there were a couple of polls in the weeks before the election which showed a, a small Conservative lead, not as big as it actually turned out. Um, generally speaking, opinion polls are pretty accurate. Uh, and you know, within, you, know, you might say, three or four points here or there. But... Uh, Generally speaking, to be this far ahead in the polls, this close to an election, um, I think there's very widespread view, which I share, that it's all but over by the shouting. Mm. Well, it's theirs to lose, it's theirs to gain. Thank you both very much. Have a great weekend. And you, <clears throat> and, and you guys. Bye. Get well Get soon, well soon, Thank you.